Jesus' name, amen. Say good morning to everyone. It's good to be here this morning. Thank you for the songs. Thank you for the scripture. It's um, good to start in that way and to get us into worship. Uh, many of you know Johnny Erickson Tata. She was in an accident when she was 17 years old and was paralyzed from the neck down in a swimming accident. She wrote a best-selling book about her experiences. Afterward, she received many calls and letters telling her that God had both the power and the desire to heal her. She became convinced of it, and in a little oak chapel near her home, several elders and ordained ministers anointed her head with olive oil and offered fervent, believing prayers for her healing. She fully expected God to heal her. A week went by, she later wrote, then another, than another. My body still had not gotten the message that I was healed. Fingers and toes still didn't respond to the mental command. You can imagine the questions that began popping into my mind, she wrote. Is there some sin in my life? Had we done things wrong? Did I have enough faith? Johnny spent the next six years searching for, in the Bible for answers about divine healing and finally came to this conclusion. God certainly can and sometimes does heal people in a miraculous way today, but the Bible does not teach that he will always heal those who come to him in faith. He sovereignly reserves the right to heal or not to heal as he sees fit, Johnny continues. From time to time, God, in his mercy, may grant us healing from disease as a gracious glimpse and a sneak preview of what is to come. It is my opinion that he sometimes does. But in view of the fact that the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness, we are not to automatically expect it. And I totally agree with Johnny. And I like how Marnell has explained it sometimes. Um, if, if like God would heal when we ask, he would become almost like a vending machine where we can get what we want and then we would be in control and that is not God. God is sovereign. He has the big picture in mind. He knows what is best for his kingdom work. I also believe in the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. I believe in anointing of oil, and we've done that here, and yet God chooses to heal. Um, the title of my sermon today is, There is a Balm in Gilead. It's taken from Jeremiah 8.22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the, the daughter of my people recovered? I've divided today's sermon in three parts. We'd like to first of all look at Jeremiah's cry there in Jeremiah 8, verses 18 to 22. Then I'd like to turn to Genesis 37 and take some, learn some lessons from Joseph's brothers. And lastly, I'd like to wrap it up with, there is a balm in Gilead. So if you could, turning your Bibles with me to Jeremiah 8, I'd like to read the last five verses there in Jeremiah 8. Jeremiah 8, starting in verse 18. <clears throat> when
When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with their strange vanities? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black, astonishment hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Jeremiah is known as a weeping prophet. We've heard that term before. And it's evident that Jeremiah was a true prophet because the revelations God gave him came true. And so he was not one of the false prophets. He shared the same view of God. He mourned and wept for the sins of the people when they followed and worshipped other gods. And Jeremiah is an example of, of how God weeps and mourns for people who turn from him. In verse 18, Jeremiah said, My grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. And in verse 21, For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I'm black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Jeremiah hurt because his people were hurting and miserable in their sin. When is the last time we mourned and wept over someone that was in sin and was hurting as consequence of their sin? We also know on the flip side, if we're right with God, sometimes we go through valleys and, and difficult times and we know that, or, or trials and temptations, and we have the promise that we have an advocate, the, uh, uh, Jesus, that um, sympathizes with us. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed unto the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God has provided a way for us, but we must come boldly to him and find grace. He gives us grace. He fills us. He enables us to get through difficult times. And I also want to recognize there's two, two types. Of, we could divide it into two types of people that need help. There are those that are right with God, have a right relationship with God, and are following him, um, and yet that doesn't exempt us. That in and of itself doesn't exempt us. We live in this world. This world is filled with sin and sinners. There's a curse. There's uh, Adam and Eve sinned, and we've all become been born sinners, but there's sin all around us, and so uh, not everything is perfect, and so uh, God is there to help us also. Then there's the other type of people like here in Jeremiah 8, that they'd turned from God and served other uh, gods. There comes a time when God turns people over to reprobate mind. We know of that. And it and seems like maybe that was the case in Jeremiah's time. Jeremiah was sent by God to cry, uh, to plead, and mourn for them to turn from their evil ways. In verse 19, Jeremiah mentions two things that, they, that the people depended on. Verse 19, Behold, 
the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? First, he, they said, is not the Lord in Zion? They had built a beautiful temple. They had witnessed when, after they built the temple and dedicated it to God, how God filled it. God was there. They had um, priests that were serving in the temple. And so they based their, like, surely God would hear us because we have a temple. God is with us. And they also said, is not her king in her? Yes, they had a king on the throne of the house of David. But on these two things, they based their salvation and security. Why would God allow the destruction of Jerusalem? Will not Zion's God protect Zion's king and his kingdom? But God answers them in verse 19. The last part says that their graven images and strange vanities had provoked God to anger. In another translation, it says they're carved idols and foreign gods. In the previous chapter, it says that God had sent many prophets to warn them. Many prophets he had sent to warn them of their evil ways, and yet they didn't hearken. In, verse, uh, in Jeremiah 7, verse 25 and 26, it says... Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily, rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. They didn't want to hear the hard words of the true prophets that God had sent they had itching ears. They wanted to hear what was, um, well, uh, Jeremiah eight eleven. It says, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They listened to the false prophets that were saying, everything is good. This is a dangerous path we can be, find ourselves on. When uh, maybe things aren't going good, um, and I've described two types of people. We can be following God and still be tempted or have difficulties. It doesn't mean we're in sin. But in this case, in Jeremiah 8, the people were following other gods. And when we follow that path of not listening to truth, not heeding God's word, um, it's just a slippery slope. Today, we also try to pacify and suppress pain and guilt temporarily by making excuses and finding people that agree with us. We can find people that agree with whatever we say. When we start to argue with God and believing lies from the enemy, we're only deceiving ourselves. The truth is truth no matter what I say or what I believe. It doesn't matter. Um, I can't um, verify, or how do I say that? I can't validate it. I can't discredit it. Truth stands on its own. The word of God is truth. We can be made to believe whatever we want, and we can find people and media to back it up. We must stand on the word of God. It's crucial that we base our decisions on the word of God and yield our will to the grace of God at work in us, even if it is painful. For in the end, it will produce fruits of righteousness and peace and life eternal. In the last part of Jeremiah 8, 
Jeremiah pleads, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? I believe it indicates, now this was a given. At that time they knew there was a balm in Gilead to heal. And there were doctors there. Gilead, Gilead was a mountainous region east of Jordan. It was a difficult area not only to navigate but also to survive. And amongst the rough terrain grew trees, shrubs, and herbs that had healing properties. It's interesting to me that out of the harsh region of Galilee, or of Gilead, came forth healing balms that were traded all over the known world at that time. Perhaps it was a shadow and type of Jesus. Referring to Jesus, Nathaniel says in John 1:46, "Can any good thing come out of Nazareth?" And in Isaiah 53:2, "For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him." In John 1, we read where the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was life and light sent to mankind. Similar to Jeremiah, John the Baptist was sent to cry and ask the people for repenting and turn from the religious rituals and turn to Jesus, the great physician. But in John 1, 5, it says, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Yes, also in Jesus' time, they rejected the truth. It was too painful. They wanted to stay in their comfort zones in the life they knew. The truth of Jesus Christ was not what the people had wanted to hear, and they even ended up crucifying him. We see a similar story in Joseph then. Back to Jeremiah 8.22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Just as there was a balm in Gilead with healing properties, there was also spiritual healing available for the people of Judah, but they rejected it. They turned away from it and went about their sinful ways. I'd like to now uh, look at Genesis 37, if you want to turn there, it's a fairly long chapter, and I'd like to draw some lessons from this chapter. I think I'll go ahead and read the whole chapter. Genesis 37, and Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with his, the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. 
And he saith, said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaves arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. And his brethren went to feed their flocks, uh, feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto thee, unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it will be whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out to the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed thence. I, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they say, said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him, cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him of their hands to deliver him to his father again. And it came to pass, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going, down, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianites, merchant men, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned into the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes, and he returned into his brother and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, this have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. 
And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into the Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and a captain of the guard. It's interesting here, it's quite an interesting account. Joseph is just an interesting account. But I'd like to um, point out three things here in the first three verses of perhaps wrongdoings or things not going well. Um, we read here in verse 2 that Joseph was only 17 years old. And so it, it would appear like maybe he was elevated above the herdsmen. He wasn't out herding sheep or, or watching over them. He was sent to uh, report or to look over them or yeah, bring a report back to his father of what had happened. It's almost like he was to go and check what it, uh, this was his father's livelihood, the family's livelihood. And it was a crucial role. Perhaps it could be compared to a, a plant production manager today, reporting back to the owner, how's things going? And, and so he was, but he was only 17 and all his half brothers were older than that that were out there with the sheep. He was the younger one, and this did not set well with his brothers. Secondly, we see in verse 2 that Joseph didn't bring back a good report of what they were doing. If you wanted to, I suppose you could say that he was a tattletale or, or uh, just a gossiper, like stirring up trouble, and yet I'm inclined to believe that his half-brothers weren't up to any good, and he was being a good steward in reporting how things were. His dad wanted to know. And I think also that his brother probably knew he would tell his father what they were up to, how things were going. And his father knew uh, they were up to no good. Thirdly, we find here that Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. That's not a good thing. It's interesting that favoritism continues. It was in... Uh, in the past, uh, Jacob also, and even in the womb, we read where uh, Esau and Jacob strove, and how that, um, well, in, in Genesis 25, 28, it says, and Isaac loved Esau because he did eat his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Wow, there was a, uh, really a controversy or favoritism going on there, and it's just not good. Uh, this has been, I don't think this is the first occurrence of favoritism. I think it's probably been building up for 17 years, I could say. And we should never be partial or pick a favorite. It just doesn't go good. We have scripture against it. James 2.1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and the, glory of the, and, and the Lord of glory. Um, and so the, in these first three verses of Genesis 37, things are not starting out well. I'd also like to point out that in spite of our circumstances, when uh, things like this happen to us, that we should not respond as Joseph's brothers did. Perhaps we have circumstances, mistreatments, or wrongs against, done against us, and we need to be as Jesus was. Jesus gave us an example of how to be. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And even, even the governor marveled when uh, Jesus was brought and accused falsely, yet he opened not his mouth. And Jesus has always been our greatest example. Jesus taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who mistreat us. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to do as Jesus would do. Joseph's brothers didn't respond as Jesus did. Rather, they focused on the wrong which, and, which had been done, and they hated Joseph. In Genesis 37, 4, it says, And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Since the day Joseph was born, hatred was building, favoritism was there, and they couldn't even any longer look him in the eye and speak friendly to him. Animosity, jealousy, and hatred has settled down deep in their hearts and made them bitter. Then Joseph had a dream where he told his brothers about it. This just added more fuel to the fire in verse 5. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And then in verse 8, and his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Hatred, hatred, hatred. And then he has yet another dream, a second dream, in uh, verses 9 through 11. And then in verse 11, it says, And his brethren envied him, and his father, but his father observed the same. Unconfessed hatred builds up over time and produces destruction and misery. All parties were miserable. We know that misery loves company, and people that are miserable seek out people that are miserable. Proverbs 26, 24 to 26 says, Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will, not, will be exposed in the assembly. 1 John 2.11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Hatred blinds and intoxicates to wrong thinking. It is a cancer that grows. It is a ticking time bomb. Hatred blinds and intoxicates us to wrong thinking. And here in Genesis 37, we're about to see what years of hatred and envy can do when they consume someone. In verse 18, and when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. Murder was not a new thought to them that day. I believe they had been contemplating. They had been talking about this. How can we get rid of the problem? And then he tells them the dreams. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. You've heard me say it often, but I'll say it again. Small daily choices add up. 
and they set a trajectory of where you will end up years down the road. Today's seemingly uh, insignificant choices, things that in and of themselves aren't sin, God is calling us to something. Your life is a sum of your daily choices. Proverbs 10, 18. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. Leviticus 19, 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest, your, lest you incur sin because of him. But praise be to God, there is a balm in Gilead to set us free. And I'd like to talk about that, the last part of my sermon here. Let's look again at Genesis 37, verses 24 and 25. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. Here the angry brothers had thrown him into the pit, and they sat down to eat bread. All was good. They were at ease. They had finally gotten rid of Joseph. There's a similar passage. There's a passage in Amos 6 that refers to this uh, Genesis 37, 25. And the people there were also at ease in their sin. In Amos 6, verse 1 says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. And then verse 6, That drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments. But they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Something is wrong. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive. Very similar here is Jeremiah. I mean uh, Genesis. Years of hatred had turned into a plot to get rid of Joseph. And they sat down to eat bread. Still today God speaks to us in a small voice. Will we obey? Too often our luxuries and affluence and friends supersede the pain and discomfort God is calling us to. Daily choices that aren't sin and in and of themselves, but are not following where God is leading us. They set a trajectory of where we end up in life. God doesn't need us to fulfill his plan and his purposes, but he invites us to join him. And I mentioned earlier that the balm of Gilead is a type and shadow of Jesus. Gilead was a rugged and desperate land, but out of it came spices, balm, and myrrh that had healing properties and were traded throughout the known world back then. Jesus was sent from Nazareth and rejected his own people. Some even asked, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I found this about Nazareth. In Jesus' day, Nazareth was a village of about 150 people. It didn't even have any industry. It depended economically on the city of Sepphoris, which was the capital of Galilee. The people of Nazareth were not of the educated class. If they were able to earn a living, they did it by the sweat of their brow. They struggled horribly. They didn't feel very good about themselves, nor did they have a lot to aspire to. Ancient scholars tended to agree that the inhabitants of Nazareth were looked down upon by the neighboring towns and cities. One scholar wrote, the character of Nazareth was proverbially bad. 
To be a Galilean or, or a Nazarene was an expression of decided contempt, and the people were thought to be wicked. Another scholar wrote, the whole country of Galilee was in contempt with the Jews, but Nazareth was so mean a place that it seemed it was even despised by its neighbors, by the Galileans themselves. Is there no balm in Gilead? Yes, there is a balm of healing if we will merely accept it. Can any good come out of Nazareth? Yes, Jesus, the Messiah, he became flesh. He came and died for our sins for reconciliation back to God that we might have life, not only the abundant life, but life eternal. Joseph's brothers were at ease with their hatred and sin and missed the balm of Gilead. As the songwriter says, there is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. May Jesus grant you healing. May he make his face to shine upon you as you daily listen to the still, small voice of what he's calling you to. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for the balm of Gilead. Thank you for Jesus that came to heal. And I pray that you would help us to keep looking to Jesus and, and to follow your, your leading and direction, even if it's uh, calling us away or, or um, not popular um, or calls us out of our easy chair. Help us to do that, to advance your kingdom work, God. With help for us to share this balm of Gilead and to share Jesus with others around us that are hurting or maybe in sin. God, I pray you would uh, bless our, the remainder of our time here together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um,